Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA Podcast Weekend Edition. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. We did it, man. We we did it. We we got to a second episode this week, even though it took the weekend to do it. But I mean, look, we got to give the people what they want. Yeah, this is what I was to say. Just with the people reaching out, needing their pound the rock fix, like Cookie Monster on Crack and Family Guy in that one episode, we got to give them what they want. Hoping what they want is an in-depth conversation about the best teams in the Western Conference, because that is exactly what we are going to provide on this episode. We teed it up. On the last one, we talked a little bit about the Suns in our Make or Miss segment, and we're going to go a little bit more in depth on them and a few other teams that we think have a case. Before we do that, do you have any thoughts? Chris Middleton's coming back tonight. We've talked about the Bucks pretty extensively, despite the fact that they've been playing without their second best player or one of their three best players, at least their lead ball handler, somebody who... I don't know what he's going to look like when he gets back, but at his best is obviously going to meaningfully boost their 17th ranked offense. Uh, what are you looking for from Middleton and the Bucks? Exactly that. I'm looking um, forward to seeing how he juices that middle of the packed offense because I do think he'll juice it and I think they will offensively start to look more like themselves uh, over the next little while. Probably won't happen immediately. Middleton's been out for a while, but I think once he gets going, they're they're going to be a lot better offensively. And, you know, we're talking about a team that went 15-5 and five to start the season despite missing their lead ball handler, secondary offensive player overall. Like, they're they're good, man. And, uh, you know, them and the Celtics, I think, are, are – have already and will continue to run away from the pack a little bit in the East. And I think Middleton's return is only going to help fuel that. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's them in Boston and everybody else. Honestly, not just in the East, but probably in the entire NBA right now. I, think I agree. They're at full strength, the two best teams and the teams we're going to talk about in the West, it's like there there isn't a clear top tier, I don't think, which is part of why I want to have this conversation because I think that makes it a little bit more interesting. Um, but I think that, yeah, the, the question with Middleton coming back is, you know, what does that, does that put the Bucks ahead of the Celtics? Does it put them on the same level? I don't think we, we've even seen those teams play this year at all, have we? Um, I don't think so off the top of my head. I mean, we haven't seen them play each other at full strength since, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head the last time they played, but I don't think the Celtics were, you know, this fully formed juggernaut version of the Celtics anyway like the Celtics got to that level and then we were all super hyped about that second round series that did wind up coming to fruition but without Middleton so I will say though that as much as I agree I mean I already said that I think these two teams will continue to run away from the pack in the east they're the two best teams in the league I think uh, by a significant margin although depending on how hot the Warriors can get but I will say that this happens often enough where it seems like two teams are on a collision course that is obviously going to happen. And it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, I can point to remember back in the day when like Dwight Howard spoiled the, what we thought was an inevitable Cavs Lakers finals. Um, Yeah. The, the, the Clippers Lakers 
conference final that never came to fruition on right. account of the Nuggets. Yeah, right. Like it just it, these things happen sometimes, and sometimes it's not even because of an injury. It's just like whatever a team gets hot or a team hits you know a slump at the wrong time, whatever it is. So that's the only thing I'd add. That as much as everyone and myself included is talking about this like inevitable collision course in the East Finals between the Celtics and Bucks, you know things can happen, and. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just talking about watching them play like a regular season game. Yeah. I'm not I'm yeah. not looking ahead to that playoff matchup just yet. And of course, I took a mulligan on my Timberwolves prediction. So my 76ers prediction that they're going to make the conference finals now for the first time in over two decades is still out there. So that's what's going to break it up. Obviously, is my Sixers coming together and ruining the party, beating one of those teams somehow. It's hard to see it happening at this point, yeah. but. They're about to get healthy. Embiid's playing some fantastic basketball. They're defending their asses off. We'll see if that can continue when Harden and Maxi get back. But uh, with that, should we move over to our central conversation today, talk about some of these Western Conference teams, figure out who the best in the West actually is? Yeah, I think we should. All right. So I have a list of five teams here that I think at this point in time can make a case for being the best team in that conference. I didn't include the Clippers. I think they're just too many unknowns. Obviously, if Kawhi does get healthy and starts playing like Kawhi again, they could very well jump into this mix. But for now, I excluded them. So I'll ask it to you straight, Cash. Like, Who do you think right now is the best team in the West? The Phoenix Suns are playing the best basketball to start the season and are in contention to be the best team in the West. As I said in our make or miss segment on the last episode, I still think the Warriors are the team to beat. I still think if they needed to right now in like a best of seven series with their lives on the line, I would still take the Warriors over any of these other teams in a playoff series. But the gap has narrowed, you know, already just from the end of last season. And again, I I think the Suns are playing the best ball right now. So, I mean, you want to start with Phoenix? Since they are atop the West standings right now, as just as they were last year. Yeah, that seems like a good place to start. I mean, can we skip past the, you know, the allegations of cuckoldry surrounding well, their starting point guard? Or well, we I was I was top? gonna say that uh, when we talked about them in that make or miss segment, one of the things I mentioned was that you know they ended up being bigger than the off court drama we thought could derail them, although that was before <laughs> the latest addition. To that drama, um, yeah, we can we can definitely skip it since neither of us know how accurate or inaccurate that allegation is. Here, okay, <laughs> say one thing. It's your piece. No, no, I was just gonna say, like, it's it's tough because I think we're both, you know, we're both pretty lighthearted when it comes to the way we like, we take the jobs seriously. And when, you know, we do the best we can in covering the NBA and, and co-hosting the podcast, but we're both lighthearted people that don't take ourselves. I don't think, or the overall, like, you know, impact of the NBA in the grand scheme of life too seriously. So with all that said, the, the tough thing I'm finding is like you, like even last night on Twitter, man, it was hilarious. Like no one can deny how funny last night was on Twitter, but then you do sit back and think, man, if this is true and like, Chris Paul, by all accounts, is still married, unless I'm mistaken. Then you start thinking of like, okay, well, there's like real world consequences here. And it's like, ah, you kind of feel weird, like turning it into a big joke. So I'm a little torn on that. 
not gonna not gonna be a fugazi about it and pretend i'm like holier than thou that i wasn't also making jokes or whatever but it is it is a difficult situation to parse through and i guess we'll just have to wait and see how it all unfolds but uh again i'm just not gonna lie last night was hilarious on twitter when it came to the memes and uh i got no problem just treating it as like unqualified really funny it, dude, <laughs> it is no it is get jokes off so well, it's funny for everyone except chris paul's wife and chris paul yeah and i guess for the you know former rapper and current nazi sympathizer at the center of the entire thing right but the kanye part of it is like whatever like he, he, we don't we clearly don't. I have no sympathy for that man exactly uh, that's what i'm saying for that it's more so like the, the chris paul part i mean we were sending each other memes last night and, and i was dying but anyway, uh, Joe, so do you think the Phoenix Suns can rise above this latest bit of off-court drama and continue to be the West's best? Oh, or absolutely. will the Kardashian I mean, curse strike again? <laughs> uh, well, look, Chris Paul hasn't even been playing and they've been motoring along, right? So it seems like he can go ahead philandering to his heart's content and the, the machine will continue chugging without him. So I think they'll be fine. This doesn't seem even like the kind of off-court issue that would necessarily derail a team. Although, obviously, I can't speak to... I mean, if Chris Paul's marriage does fall apart on account of this, then, yeah, that would obviously impact a man's psyche and probably affect his performance. So, I don't want to presume anything. But I think that is what has so impressed me about this Suns team so far this season is Chris Paul's played less than half of their games. Uh, Cam Johnson has played eight games. Campaign is filling in for Chris Paul. Tory Craig is filling in for Cam Johnson. <laughs> and it just keeps rolling. They're second in offense, sixth in defense. Second in offense, by the way, a mere five points per hundred possessions behind the first place Celtics. And second in net rating. And it's like, you, you kind of look at their underlying numbers. They don't shoot a lot of threes. And this is nothing new, by the way. But they don't shoot a lot of threes. They really don't get to the rim. They don't get to the free throw line. And somehow they're still second in offense. And it's kind of on both sides of the ball. It's just like this attention to detail, consistency. Like they never make mistakes. They nail all their help rotations. Their offensive actions are just always very crisp, very purposeful. They stack actions on top of actions and kind of build their possessions out piece by piece in a very like interesting but also kind of straightforward way with one thing flowing into the next and you know cuts and screens that play off of each other on both sides of the floor like that doesn't sound exciting (laughs) but it's super effective and it's also not not exciting it's just I don't know I guess that the excitement for the most part is driven by Devin Booker yeah exactly I mean he had 51 points through three quarters the other night in a beatdown of the Bulls. He has played just exceptional basketball to start the season. We know what he is offensively, and his work on the defensive end this season, I think, is, is what has stuck out to me the most. Like He is yeah. such a vastly improved defender, both in terms of effort, attention to detail, effectiveness, like whatever you want to say. This is the most complete version of Devin Booker we've ever seen, and it has him squarely in the you know quarter season MVP race, if you want to call it, if you care about that, whatever. But like the point is that he is like that that superstar level he's in, 
he goes from star to all-star to superstar level. But this year, he's taking it to another level where he's like very much in that top, top tier of impact because of how good he's been on both ends. And when you have a guy like that, you know, in his prime playing the way he is, your floor is pretty high and they've managed to kind of find ways to do it. I mean, you mentioned it like, you know, top two offense, top six defense, number two in net rating, uh, first in the West, despite the fact an injury has left Chris Paul with the like seventh in total minutes on this team. If someone had told you Chris Paul's injury is going to leave him seventh in minutes through a quarter of the season on the Suns, you'd be like, Ugh. Hope some other stuff kind of works in their favor. Well, it has, because Devin Booker's been that awesome. Mikel Bridges, who we talked about in that make or miss segment, has been so good. And with Bridges, I think what's interesting is like, if you just look at the the, the traditional numbers, even some of the advanced numbers, like, they're not that much better than they were even last year. So if you haven't watched the Suns play, you might not realize how much better he's been. But the biggest development for him, for the Suns, whether you're talking now, future upside-wise, and the, the reason why his improvement this year has been so important for the Suns with Chris Paul out is his improvement when it comes to self-creation it might sound modest when I say look he's got like the the percentage of his two-point field goals that are assisted are down to 63.9 percent this year so he's still you know he's only creating like 36 percent of his own two-point shots but when you consider that through the first four years of his career that number was at like 76 percent and he was self-creating less than a quarter of his field goal attempts, that actually is a big jump and a big development. Again, especially a very big development for the Suns with Chris Paul out when they needed someone else who could do that. So Bridges stepping up in that way has been huge. And then the last thing I'll just point to before seating the mic back to you is that their bench just is sneaky good again. Like, And it's in ways you probably didn't anticipate because like you said you know campaign and Tory Craig were filling in for Chris Paul and campaign but then they've got this bench that you know according and I know it's not the best measure uh the way they do it but still that the way the NBA stats advanced bench metric where I think it's like net rating based on when you have two or more bench players on the court I think that's how they do it which isn't a bad measure but um Anyway, the, the Suns are top three in bench net rating in that metric. And it's led by guys like Damian Lee, Landry Shamit, Jock Landell, Bismack Biombo, uh, Campaign, and Troy Craig when they have been on the bench. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're just a really well-oiled machine right now. It'll be interesting to see, you know, when Chris Paul gets back, if, if it just keeps on humming. I assume it will. Also, it will be interesting to see, too, though, like Chris Paul at this stage of his career, whether he can actually get back to kind of full strength and maintain that sustain that for an entire season um so anyway that's my piece on on kind of why or how they've been able to be this excellent despite chris paul being out not sure how much you have to add to that but i'll ask you because the one thing we haven't talked about or the one player we haven't talked about is deandre eight mm-hmm. what have you seen from Aiton in this first year of his new extension that he signed with the team he did not actually want to sign it with not really that much that we haven't seen before yeah I think he's more or less the same player, which is a very good player. Like he's, he could be exactly this player and still be very beneficial for a very good Suns team. I think you could maybe say he's been a little bit more assertive in terms of just like rolling to the basket, rolling into switches, getting deep seals, looking for his own offense a little bit more. But, you know, it's still like he shies away from contact. He would rather go to like the hook shot or like a short floater or mid-range jumper rather than kind of power into guys and, and finish through contact and get himself to the free throw line. Like for a guy as big as he is, 
Like a guy as big as he is, who is also as offensively skilled as he is, he really doesn't get to the line a lot. And that's, I mean, he's just more of a, of a finesse finisher than he is a power finisher. And that's fine because he's a really effective finisher anyway. Like he's absolute money from eight to 12 feet. So I don't think it's a problem. Uh, I think he's a big part of what makes their offense go. And he's also a huge part of what makes their defense uh, so effective. Like he gives them a really high floor because of his ability to execute multiple different types of coverages, right? Like he can switch out, he can be at the level, he can be in a standard drop, very solid rim protector, really good post defender. He does a lot of things well. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me that much that he's not showing a, a ton of skill progression or fundamentally changing his game because the player that he is, is a really excellent plug and play center. Um, it is funny to me though, like you mentioned Jock Landale and I don't know what they're putting in the water in Phoenix, but every single center that they plug in there just seems to thrive. And I kind of thought it was maybe a Chris Paul thing and just sort of like that pick and roll structure just makes it really easy for a big man to slot in and eat. And their defensive structure kind of protects those big men with the sort of help that they can shade from the wing with Mikel Bridges and their point of attack defenders being very strong. Their roster looks like a little bit different this year and somehow their centers are still cooking. You know, like last year it was JaVale McGee looked amazing there and he got, he parlayed that into a deal with the Mavericks that had us both scratching our heads and even more so now. But he looked amazing there last year as a backup center and Frank Kaminsky early last year. I don't know if you remember this, but he oh, was I remember. his mind. Uh, Jalen Smith was playing terrific there before getting traded to Indiana. Biombo, like I, anybody that they plug in at the five is like kissed by the basketball gods. It's amazing. And, and Landale is like the latest one to play shockingly well. So whatever, whatever they're doing, whatever big man coach they have down there, whatever program they're running for their centers, is working like gangbusters. Um, okay, so just one quick question for you about the Suns before we transition. And maybe this is something we can kind of ask for all of these teams. What is the thing that would or will theoretically undo this team? Like why? I mean, we, we saw what happened to them last year, obviously. And we don't need to rehash all the reasons that that, that happened. But if we're poking holes, what what are those holes for Phoenix? Um, and it's, it's hard to find legitimate basketball holes in their makeup right now. So I'd say that for everything we've said about how they've been able to not just survive, but thrive in Chris Paul's absence, it is December. And I think there's a big difference between doing this right now and how much of this they'd be able to replicate in tough seven game series against the other teams we're going to be talking about today. So I would say my biggest concern with them is actually less to do with what everything looks like right now and more to do with what I mentioned a few minutes ago was that like at this stage of his career with all the injuries behind him and, and the things that seem to creep up where it's like now it's a lot of these nagging injuries with Chris Paul is can he get on the court to like full strength and sustain that for those seasons so that when the Suns are in that you know, sprint to the finish in the spring, Chris Paul is consistently on the court and like at his best for the most part from April to June, because they do still need that if they're truly going to compete for a championship, right? Like all this is nice, but if Chris Paul wasn't at full strength or was in and out of the lineup come the playoffs, 
I, I, they're not beating all of these teams four out of seven. I I mean, I just wonder, I guess, about the math. Like that yes, that was that was kind of yeah. what I mean. There were a lot of different things, but against the Mavs last year, you you hit on this right, like the overwhelming three point disparity in that series, and it's like, okay, can they? It's obviously been super effective to this point, three years running now, but you know, can they keep doing this with this sort of mid range oriented offense where they're not getting to the line really to tilt the math back in their favor for whatever they're losing from the three-point line and also, you know, not getting to the rim a whole ton. They're actually getting more offensive rebounds this year than they have in the past. But I just wonder about that. But anyway, just just to cap this off, Devin Booker, 29-5-6 and six on 61% true shooting. And I know I kind of mentioned to you after that 51.28 shooting possession in 30 minute game that he put together against the bulls, which was absolutely insanely impressive. I just feel like this is a juice ball era right now. And like you look at those numbers and it's like, yeah, he's been unbelievable. But then you compare him to guys like Steph Tatum, Jokic, just in terms of like scoring efficiency and volume. And it's like, wow, that, it's still a huge mountain to climb if you want to get into serious MVP consideration. Well, maybe that's a perfect segue then to us talking about the Nuggets. Because sure. I just want to put it out there. Nikola Jokic, who had kind of a meh for his standards, start to the season. Last year, I'd say it was around this time, probably a bit earlier, where I you know put out a statement between I, I wrote about it. I put a video up about it on the scores YouTube page for our unfiltered series. And the point of it was that like Jokic coming off an MVP season was somewhat, you know, in the weeds in last year's early season MVP race. Cause everyone was all in on how great Steph had started the year. And it was like the MVP Steph is back and it's his year and all that. And people forgot there was still like four months left in the season and it's a long haul and it's a marathon, whatever. And my argument at the time was, uh, are we sure Jokic isn't just the MVP again? And took some ridicule at the time, ends up winning his, his second straight MVP. Now, I I don't think he would win it this year because of a lot of voter, for, voter fatigue, but I almost want to ask the same question I asked about a year ago, and that is even after a mess start to the season, are we sure Nikola Jokic isn't still the most valuable player in basketball because Joe Wolf won, the man is averaging, 22.7 points, 9.8 rebounds, 8.9 assists on 70% true shooting. 70 for a second place team on pace for 54 wins who performs like the worst team in the league when he sits. Now, older starters have big on off numbers thanks in part to a bench that is bad, but Jokic's is the highest. And if you just look at it overall, I mean, depending on where you get your numbers from, if you go by basketball reference, Nikola Jokic's on-off net rating is plus 24.8 points per 100 possessions. At NBA Wowie, it's 26.5. At Cleaning the Glass, it is 29.9. Yeah. According to Cleaning the Glass, the Denver Nuggets perform basically 30 goddamn points per 100 possessions better when Jokic is on versus Jokic off. It's the exact same as last year, which is that when he's on, they have the best net rating in the league. When he's off, they have the worst net rating in the league. And again, he's doing that while 23, 9, and 9 on 70% true shooting for a second place team. So I say it again. I know it's early. I know a lot of people roll their eyes at any early season MVP talks. So we don't even have to get into the debate. I'm just kind of throwing it out there. 
are we sure Nikola Jokic isn't still the most valuable player in the NBA? Because I'm not. No, I'm pretty close to sure that he is, actually. And I, I really want to address this thing about the bench because, you know, you mentioned the starters all having good on-offs because the bench is bad. It's not about the bench being bad. It's about the, the Nuggets being bad when Nikola Jokic isn't on the floor. Great point. And I, I've seen this argument made a lot, and it drives me nuts when people are like, oh, you can't give Jokic credit for the team, like for the rest mm-hmm. of the team being bad when he's not out there. Okay, can I give him credit for the fact that they are plus 14 per 100 possessions when he's on the court? Yeah. Like, does he get credit for that? Plus 14? And look at who he's playing with. I mean, it's not like, yeah, the, the rest of the starters are good players who complement each other well, who play really well off of Jokic, but take him out of that equation, all of their individual net ratings completely crater. And it's an issue like that they have to figure out, which is they don't have a lot of offensive structure when he's not on the floor. And that, you know, that's a, a seasons long problem now. So it's not unique to this year, but like individually, a lot of their bench players have been fine. You know, like I think, Christian Brown has actually been pretty good and Bones Highland has looked at least offensively has looked quite good when he's been healthy. Jeff Green's been fine. Even DeAndre Jordan, man, people are ragging on DeAndre Jordan as a backup five. He's fine. Like he's been not that bad this year, but they, they just haven't figured out, especially offensively how to play without Jokic. So to, to hammer this home, Jamal Murray without Jokic this year, minus eight net rating Nikola Jokic without Jamal Murray this year plus 14 net rating Aaron Gordon without Jokic minus 16 Jokic without Gordon plus 8.5 MPJ without Jokic minus 8.5 Jokic without MPJ plus 12 Bruce Brown without Jokic minus 12.9 Jokic without Bruce Brown plus 21.4 I could keep going like it goes on and on and on basically separate Jokic from any single player or any single lineup on that team and it's been a disaster put Jokic with any player or in any lineup configuration and that team is incredible and you know, the funny thing actually to me is like you know who actually has the best net rating on the team when Jokic is on the bench do you want to guess uh, Zeke no, I, just, I don't know who is it DeAndre Jordan oh that's hilarious a totally respectable minus 1.5 net rating when, when Jokic isn't out there. So don't say that this is just being driven by his backup being terrible. That's not what's happening. Um, Jokic is insane. He makes like eight passes a game that I swear would be the best pass ever thrown by like 99% of the guys in the league. Every game, over and over and over again. Um, and he, he has, I think this started to change a little bit. And to me... Just anecdotally, it feels like that's the result of more teams trying to play him in single coverage, where he started to take a more assertive approach as a scorer. Early in the season, it felt like he was really taking a passive approach and just making a point of trying to set other guys up, especially you know with Murray and Porter Jr. coming back from injuries and like him trying to get them comfortable. You know, the one thing I guess if you wanted to pick a nit is that he is barely shooting any threes, and he's shooting under thirty percent on those threes and like he's also just sort of passing up a lot of open looks from out there out of the pick and pop it just doesn't really matter because yeah he'll like pump fake and then burrow inside the arc and do a spin move and a pivot and a reverse pivot and 
he'll just wind up close to the basket and score or he'll draw a double team and pass it to somebody else who scores. So it's like him not shooting those right now isn't really hurting their offense at all. But I do think down the road, I I feel like that is still an important variable for him. And so I do wonder, you know, when it matters most, if he's going to trust that shot and let it fly. Because if he does, he's just, he's the best offensive player in basketball, full stop. And if he doesn't, I hate to say it, he might only be the second best offensive player in basketball. <sighs> big, big drop off. Um, Murray's been good too. He's rounding into form lately. Uh, you know, started slow. I think it's like the last twelve games. He's averaging an efficient twenty points per game. The interesting thing there is like, I actually think he's rounding into form and starting to look like his old self quicker than I thought he would. The one thing I think is is almost funny is that it's like given how quickly he has rounded into form after, you know, a, a slow start, it makes me think that slow start actually had nothing to do with his injury recovery. And it's just par for the course for Jamal Murray, who always starts slow as Nikola Jokic will even tell you. So maybe he really is just back to being Jamal Murray, start slow, start picking it up. And now he'll mm-hmm. score a ton and do it efficiently. Um, but I, I'd say yeah. that's a, I, for me anyway, I'd say it's somewhat of a pleasant surprise that offensively, at least he is starting to round into form this quickly. Yeah, I think, A little bit of what's still missing for me is the off-ball explosiveness. Like, he's doesn't quite have that super jittery, unpredictable off-ball movement pattern that I think can, like, really disorient defenses. It's still, I don't know, maybe it's like a, a change of direction thing that like short area burst that I feel like has made him so effective as an off ball player in the past. I don't feel like that's all the way back. I think it started shooting the ball a lot better, which is great to see, but like the touch uh, and like the finishing, not even just at the rim, but kind of like from floater range, I feel like has been pretty poor. And I don't know how much of that has to do with just like a lack of lift, you know, that like that might be a part of it, but he's definitely coming around, definitely starting to look better. I also think Aaron Gordon, like he's maybe been their second best player so far this season. And what a perfect landing spot for him. Because how many times did we talk when he was in Orlando about, okay, there is like an absolutely dynamic role player in here. He just needs to be in the right situation to actualize that skill set rather than a place where he's being forced to do too much. And his weaknesses are being exposed and his strengths aren't really being amplified. And like he could not, have found a better situation because he's, I feel like he's such a star in his role in Denver. Like he cuts so well off of Jokic. He gets really deep post seals and he does it early. You know, like so much of it is just him running the floor really hard and, you know, beating his man down the floor. And essentially then once he gets to like the charge circle, he's sealing his guy and putting them in the basket and I just love that he does that. Like that's not a lot of guys in the league will run the floor to get post-ups, but Aaron Gordon is definitely one of those guys and Jokic will pretty much always reward him for that. So I think he's been great. And I don't know, overall, I mean, look, that, that starting lineup works very well together. I just want to say again, maybe the bench isn't great, but you could put Jokic with any combination of those bench players and they will still perform exceptionally well. So uh, I don't know entirely what to make of that, except to say that Nikola Jokic is incredible, and it would be nice to see them figure out how to play without him at some point in time. Because, uh, I mean, we can talk about the defense more broadly, because that, because that could be an issue even with Jokic on the floor. Yeah, but definitely, if we're doing the poking holes thing, 
their inability to to hold leads essentially when Jokic is on the bench is going to be probably the biggest question for this team to answer. I'd say the defense is the biggest question because as concerning as their inability to do anything without Jokic is, if we're talking about like a playoff setting, you know, it's what ideally like eight minutes, they have to figure that out every game. Now I understand that those eight minutes could derail them given how bad they are without Jokic. But the bigger issue to me is can they defend at anything close to a championship level for the 48 minutes that the game's going on, including the ones where Jokic is out there. Uh, It goes back. Like when we did, that written series coming into the year where it was like the tiers of contention in each conference and, you know, figuring out why we think teams could or can't win the championship based on some various questions in the Nuggets section. I talk about whether they can sustain their defensive improvement from last season with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter coming back into the mix full time this season. And like the last question I asked in that was because I think last year they ended up like a middle of the pack defense. And this year they're back to a bottom 70, they're 24th. And the question I'd asked in it was, can Gordon, KCP, Brown, Jeff Green, and one of Zeke Najee or DeAndre Jordan help Jokic anchor a championship level defense? And right now the answer looks like no. Still early, but early returns aren't great. My question for you to wrap up this nugget segment, I guess, would be how much of this poor defensive start do you think is easily just tied to, well, Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. are back, or are you seeing something else that is not really tied to those guys uh well mpj's defense is a problem yeah it's not any more of a problem than it was before but it still is i think murray's been fine on that end i guess in general i mean i consistently wonder why Jokic isn't a better rim protector than he is like i know he doesn't get off the ground but there are a lot of guys who don't get off the ground who have been effective rim protectors in the past i mean tim duncan barely got off the ground right and i'm not trying to compare Jokic to tim duncan defensively obviously but like why couldn't he be a similar type of defender who you know is not relying on raw athleticism or leaping ability but is just relying on his size and his smarts his timing never seems to be quite right and I don't know his shot contests make very little impact and year after year after year the Nuggets are one of the worst teams when it comes to protecting the rim and I, I think it's been more noticeable to me this year because I feel like the Nuggets have actually played him in a conventional drop a little bit more often than they have over the past few years when they've been... and They still bring him up to the level a lot, but I just feel like they're they're dropping him back actually a little bit more this year. So that's part of it. And part of it too is, yeah, they have Gordon, but apart from that, like the guys that they have defending on the wing just aren't that big. I have an immense amount of respect for Bruce Brown and how hard he works defensively, but like watching them play the Celtics a couple of weeks back. And I know the Celtics offense has been doing ungodly things to every team they've played this year, but it was noticeable to me that like Tatum saw right past Bruce Brown. He had no issue scoring on him over and over again. And, and part of it is like, okay, so Aaron Gordon has the size, I think to make that a more difficult matchup for Tatum. But I, you don't really want to have Aaron Gordon defending on the ball, at least not that often, especially if you're bringing Jokic up to the level. Like, you want to have Gordon's size behind him in those situations. And so that is something, I guess, that would be a bit of a concern, is like who, if they face a team that has these kind of multiple wing creators, who's handling those assignments? Uh, you know, like, I guess in the West, 
what does that even really look like? Is that a fully healthy Clippers team? I don't know. Maybe there's just not another team that yeah. that would give you that kind of concern. But there are teams that would maybe give Jokic some issues in pick and roll. You know, like the Warriors, like the Grizzlies, like the Suns even. They have a lot of defensive questions to answer, and that that's going to be the big thing. And, and just one more thing, too, is like judging them now at this point of the season, I feel like it's tough because they have played such a soft schedule. Like that game against the Celtics is one of the few games that they've played against legit competition where both teams have basically been fully healthy. Um, B-Ball Index actually has a strength of schedule metric that accounts for rest advantage, home road, uh, and who actually plays in the games. And by that measure, the Nuggets have played by far the easiest schedule in the league so far. So be interesting to to revisit all this stuff when their schedule actually takes a more difficult turn because right now like they have a good record and their numbers look good but they've played a lot of games against like the Rockets and Spurs yeah okay so let's leave that there and uh why don't we take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the other three teams on our list what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Uh, Okay, Cash, we've talked Suns, we've talked Nuggets. Who else, in your mind, has a case for being the top team in the West. Got to talk Memphis, man. We, I think I did, maybe you did too, but I know I kind of joked in the season or before the season, even in that write-up I did before the season where I said like, okay, on paper, again, you can say this is the year the Grizzlies maybe underperform in compared to expectations or slide from the quote-unquote overachieving they've done the last couple of years. But at the end of the day, John Morant, Taylor Jenkins, this entire cast of characters that you don't think on paper looks like a true contender will find a way to be in the mix as they have been the last couple of years. They will overachieve expectations as they have the last couple of years. And here they are doing it again. I mean, John Morant just continues to defy expectations at all times. The big development now is that they've got Jaron Jackson back and they're, I think they have a top 10 offense last time I checked. Their defense is down. It's like slightly below average. It's like 18th. But I would imagine that with Jackson back, the guy we both picked to as our defensive player of the year last year, that that defense will start coming up and will you know, complement a top 10 offense very well. Desmond Bain has been one of the most improved players to start the season. I don't know. I watch the Grizzlies and I'm obviously always impressed. I think they're a very like... They're a very organized team who knows who they are. Mm-hmm. Ja is as audacious as any star in the league. And again, and, and and the way Jaron Jackson defends, they are a complete team. But then, like when you look at it on paper, maybe it just shouldn't matter anymore because they continue to do it. They win games. Who cares? But I don't know. Am I wrong in saying when you look at them on paper, top to bottom, it still doesn't feel like they should be this good? Well, how good is this good? Because right now they're twelve and nine with a plus one net rating. Right, so, but that, but they also missed, you know, arguably their second best player for a lot of that time. 
Well, yeah, and no, I was going to mention, like, it actually is quite impressive that they've done that with Jaron Jackson missing the first 15 games of the season. And then I don't even think Desmond Bain has played a game since Jaron came back. So uh, that three-man core has not been healthy together at any point this season. So, yeah, that is actually quite impressive. Um, And I think, look, that's another thing that sort of showcases their depth. That's been something that's carried them for the last couple of years where, you know, last year they were, what, 20 and five or something like that with Ja out of the lineup. So I think, yeah, that's like we were talking about with Phoenix. It's like, you know, they they have other guys that they can plug in and sort of keep chugging along. I will say, and like when I spotlighted them as a team that could potentially regress this season, I mentioned the Jaron thing, which is now a non-issue because not only is he back and they totally held down the fort without him, he looks incredible. Yeah. Like his defense looks just as good, if not better than it did last year when we both thought he deserved to win defensive player of the year. Um, I mean, he just closes space so fast. He is such an unbelievable and versatile rim protector because he can do it in a drop, like stepping up from the baseline, like from a stationary position or on the move. So that is no longer a concern. The other thing that I pointed to was, okay, their bench has been super important for them for the last couple of years. And they lost these two very critical bench pieces in DeAnthony Melton and Kyle Anderson. And as much as their depth has kind of shown through in terms of patching over some injuries and guys who have been out of the lineup, their bench actually has been really poor so far this season. And that maybe has something to do with the fact that their bench players are having to jump into the starting lineup to fill in for guys who are missing. But I actually do think they're missing those guys that they lost in the offseason. And maybe that's not the end of the world. That's not going to prevent them from being the best team in the conference. But I think that that has actually borne out in terms of, you know, something that was a, a big strength for this team in the past that is looking maybe like a bit of a weakness right now. Because they're, they're giving big minutes to a couple of rookies and Jake LaRavia and David Roddy, who for a lot of the season have struggled and they've shown flashes for sure, especially lately Roddy, I feel like has really started to come around, but like those guys aren't good NBA players at this point in time. And the guys that they lost off the bench were. Yeah. I think that's all part of the reason why for as much as I remain impressed by the Grizzlies, for as much as I think they'll continue to get better with Jaron Jackson back in the fold. And as the, uh, as the defense gets better, I do still think there is a bit of a separation line between the first couple teams we talked about in the Suns and Nuggets. One of the teams we're going to talk about the defending champion Warriors. And then, you know, whatever kind of tier you put the Grizzlies in. I think they deserve to be talked about in this conversation. But I do still think there is a somewhat of a gap between those top two, three, four teams maybe and and the Grizzlies. Yeah. But also will... Jaws defense Jaws defense is still so bad. It's a problem. It is a problem. He gets lost in the sauce when he's defending off ball like it happens time and again and it's kind of an important point you made about Devin Booker and how far he has come at the defensive end which I 100% agree with and that is why I would not give any pushback about actually mentioning him in the MVP conversation even though I don't think he's been quite on the level of the top guys I do think he deserves mention because he has become a two-way player whereas Ja I just don't think I can take him seriously as an actual MVP candidate as long as he's defending like this. Because 
we saw that in last year's playoffs, man. That was a problem. Like they almost lost that series against the Timberwolves because Ja couldn't defend. Yeah. And again, they do have a good infrastructure to kind of protect him. Not just Jaron, but you know, Steven Adams, Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks is amazing, man. I'm so I, I see so much like undue hate for Dylan Brooks just because of the way that he can sometimes call his own number and monopolize the offense. And I get the frustration with that. But like I've always said with Dylan Brooks, you just got to take the bad with the good because there is so much good. He is such a good defender, such a versatile defender, like the types of assignments that he gets just one after the other. Like he'll go from guarding a slithery point guard to guarding freaking Zion Williamson and doing about as good a job as anyone in the league has done this year at shutting off Zion's water. I just, I love him. Love watching him defend as physical as he is, as over the top as he can be. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, yes, you, you do see the undue hate when it comes to his maybe quick trigger sometimes offensively and calling his own number. But the reason I think it's undue hate is because when a guy defends his ass off the way Dylan Brooks does on a team where let's face it, we just admitted that the franchise player does not, Right. And okay, fine. John Morant's obviously in a different level than Dylan Brooks. We understand that, including his impact on the game. But when a guy like Dylan Brooks does what he does on the defensive end for a team whose franchise player doesn't, I am more than okay with once in a while. And okay, people will be like, well, that's more than once in a while. But still, I'm more than okay with a guy once in a while calling his own number on the offensive end and trying to get his while everyone else gets theirs. It's fine. These guys are human. They want a little bit of shine too on the offensive end. And Dylan Brooks' defensive effort warrants some of that self-indulged shine on the offensive end. Yeah, and I think it's also, it's really important for what it allows Jaron to do, right? Like if there is a power forward, you know, like uh, like Carl Towns, honestly, in last year's playoffs is a good example of this. Well, he was playing center for them then, but like they kind of like they stuck Brooks on him and Brooks was like totally fine in that matchup, better than fine. He was really good. And that allows Jaron to guard, you know, like a non-shooter, like a Vanderbilt or a Jaden McDaniels and just rove and create havoc, which is what he's best at. And I thought that Pelicans game, like they destroyed the Pelicans last time those two teams played. That was a perfect example where Jaron was guarding Herb Jones and just blowing everything up around the rim because honestly, because Dylan Brooks kind of had the Zion matchup on lock. I thought you were going to say uh, Brooks is good for Jaron Jackson because he helps Jaron Jackson get offensive rebounds. With <laughs> Well, that too, man. The Grizzlies are the best offensive rebounding team in basketball, and somebody's got to put those shots off the rim yeah. or the glass if somebody's going to collect them. And I do think there is, as much as we're kind of joking, there is something to that, right? Like, if you are just consistently, you know, say what you want about the efficacy of Dylan Brooks's offensive game. He is still putting some measure of pressure on the defense because he puts his head down and he drives hard. You know, he will put up shots and that can be a stressor sometimes, you know, it's when the there's a guy who don't get the rebound. Exactly. He might lead the league in Kobe assists, honestly. 100%. I, and like, I, because I said some negative stuff about jaw, I don't want, I mean, I think we've said enough positive things about jaw on this podcast, but, you know, people know where we stand on him as a whole. Obviously, the defense isn't what defines him. The The, the leap that Desmond Bain has made, Sorry. we talked about on an earlier episode, you know, where they rank in terms of backcourts around the league. I mean, with both of those guys in the lineup, this offense is so deadly. 
that even some defensive concerns, honestly, with both of those guys, like it's a way less of an issue for Bain, but he's not some ace point of attack defender either. Even some defensive concerns, I, I don't think will necessarily be enough to derail them. Like I could totally see this team winning the Western Conference, honestly, with their ability to score and then their ability to defend well enough. They they kind of have the goods. Even if I may not agree wholeheartedly, it's hard to argue with what this team has done the last couple of years, what they continue to do. And it's hard to put a cap on what they can do based on the expectations they continue to defy. You you don't agree that they have the goods to win the West? To actually win the West and get to the finals? I think they're mm-hmm. like a player short, maybe. What type of player? I'd say it, a big. A I mean, big? Well, think about it. They've got... I, I wouldn't disrupt the job, Bain, Brooks, Triumvirate. Mm-hmm. And Jaron Jackson is you know a, a defensive player of the year candidate. So I don't know. Do you, you put another small around? You go like four out, one in with Jaron Jackson. I mean, you could. I, maybe not necessarily a traditional big, but like a big forward, something like that to share the front mm-hmm. court with Jaron Jackson, who doesn't necessarily like crowd him or take away from his strengths, but can still give them size. Because especially with the defensive concerns in front of him, I definitely wouldn't put like a fourth small-ish guy out there. So I don't know. It's like, can you find like a, a kind of big forward or a big that doesn't crowd Jaron Jackson's space that can complete? Uh, yeah, like an Aaron Gordon type. No, exactly. That's exactly it, right? Mm. Who play, I mean, Aaron Gordon plays power forward. So I guess technically, position-wise, he's a big, but he's not really a big. He's really just a big forward. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe you're right about that. I actually, I think Jaron's best position is a power forward. Like, I don't think they should be trying to shoehorn him into the five spot. Yeah, I agree. But in terms of, I guess, you know, Steven Adams is still only going to play 25 minutes a game, something like that. So you're still going to have some Jaron at center minutes. And maybe in those minutes, you do want someone a bit better than Brandon Clark next to him. Uh, even though that pairing has been really successful in the past, uh, I suppose they could stand to upgrade there. But Let's move on. We, we mentioned the Pelicans uh, and the Pelicans and the Grizzlies have kind of gone back and forth in that matchup. I think it's it's one of my favorite matchups actually in the league right now. I always tune into those games. It's turned into kind of a spirited rivalry. I feel like those fan bases don't seem to like each other very much. And they're just two of the most exciting young teams in the league. So we've talked about the Pelicans a bunch. We actually talked about them as a team that we were disappointed in after you know 10 or 12 games or so. And the funny thing is, I kind of still feel that way, even though they are 13 and eight, third in the West, with the second best net rating in the conference, sixth in offense, fourth in defense. I say all that, and I just still feel like there's so much meat on the bone. And, and by the way, and, you say all that, they did all that with you know Zion in and out of the lineup, and now with Ingram and McCollum out of the lineup. So, I want to talk about that because I think there are some silver linings with Ingram and McCollum being Point out. Zion? Yeah. So that's th- this is what I'm saying is like why I think they have a, a strong case for being the best team in the conference. A, I mean, I kind of felt that way coming into the season already, but having watched them, they're playing well, their underlying numbers all look good, and it just still feels like they aren't fully optimizing the roster. So I guess... How you feel about that in the big picture depends on how much faith you have in them eventually figuring out 
how to make the best use of the pieces they have, which, you know, maybe you don't, but I kind of do. And, you know, in terms of the things that we talked about when we talked about them last time and what was disappointing about them, a lot of that still holds. Like, they're still not getting up enough threes. There still are a few too many possessions for my liking where Zion is just not involved. And again, that's where you get into, okay, with Ingram and CJ out of the lineup, they have no choice but to lean into point Zion. And they honestly look incredible. Like, they, point, that game against Zion, the Raptors. Point Zion with shooting around him and yeah. getting up and down the court. Yeah, pretty fun watch and pretty effective on the court too. And it has the added benefit sorry, like CJ and Ingram being out, had the added benefit of really letting Dyson Daniels spread his wings we are and play the point a little bit. And I mean, we've been lobbying for more minutes for him. I think he's so good. I think he, like as a rookie, his defensive feel, his offensive decision-making, his rebounding, he rules. So I'm hoping that he's just a mainstay in the rotation now. And, you know, D- Devontae Graham... Dude, everyone who's played at least 100 minutes for the Pelicans so far has a positive net rating, except for Devontae Graham. Like, I just, I think he can still be a useful player. I'm sure there's a team out there that, you know, could benefit from his services. I just think that he has kind of overstayed his welcome in the Pelicans rotation. I don't think they need him. They have enough ball handling and shooting without him. Uh, They should lean into their size and lean into defense because... Look at them, man. They're fourth in defense. Like, what do you what do you make of that? You think that's real? I mean, maybe fourth isn't real, but it's hard. You'd have to say them being good defensively is real because fourth is a pretty high benchmark to not be real at all on the defensive end. You know what I mean? It's like they might not be the fourth best defensive team in the league, but I don't think you can be a top four defense given everything they've gone through already this season if you're not at least good on that end. So I think there's reason to be encouraged there that they can sustain a good defense while eventually settling into an elite offense. Mm. You mentioned it doesn't even feel like they're really like humming or being completely utilized effectively yet. And there they are still with a, with the sixth best offense. So um, my question would be, can Willie Green optimize Zion within the offense once Ingram and McCollum are back? The answer right now has been no. Can can he have learned anything? Can the team have learned anything from this stretch with those guys out and what Zion's doing that they can then use when those guys are back? I would hope so. I mean, I think... <laughs> I, I've come to really like Ingram. I think he's a, a terrific player. And there is a universe in which him and Zion can, you know, not only coexist, but like really amplify each other. That's, I don't feel like that's truly happened yet. And part of that to me is I don't think like Ingram is a great off ball player and Zion is. So that naturally leads to this scenario where Ingram becomes more of the on ball guy and Zion, the off ball guy. But I actually think, you know, Zion is better as an on ball guy. And so this is part of the reason I told you, like they've become my favorite theoretical Kevin Durant destination where I would I would put Ingram on the table plus stuff I guess if you needed to add stuff to him to get KD because like I think they would win the West and I think they would have a legitimate title shot if they actually went and did that just because I I don't know that Ingram will ever be good enough playing off of Zion to like fully optimize him 
in this offense. And CJ, it should it shouldn't be an issue. Like CJ yeah. should just be an off guard. And obviously, when those other guys aren't on the floor, he can run the offense. He's capable of doing that, especially against transitional lineups. But when the starters are all out there, I don't want to see CJ monopolizing the ball, man. I want to see yeah. him moving around off of it and bombing catch and shoot threes. Like that's that should be his role, and that should be an easy fix. If front offices listen to pound the rock, then we will get a Suns Pelicans West final that features Anthony Davis in a Suns uniform and Kevin Durant in a Pelicans uniform. Damn. I mean, honestly, I think for for both of those teams, there are uh, potential moves to be made that could make them the prohibitive favorite in the West. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I think regardless, like even if they don't fully optimize everything and just hit on every rotation decision and offensive structure decision, even then, I think this team is really good. I don't think the defense is entirely real. They've definitely benefited from some opponent shooting luck, but they obviously have some real defensive studs in that rotation. Herb, Alvarado, Nance has been unbelievable. Honestly, Zion has, I think, leveled up at the defensive end. He still has some on-ball lapses, and those are the ones that are more obvious to see. But very quietly, I think his off-ball defense has really been cleaned up. Like, there used to just be so many possessions where he didn't know where to be. He was standing in no man's land. He would botch rotations. I see very little of that this season. And I actually think he is making really productive help rotations. Like he's actually becoming an impact off ball defender. So I think he's actually contributing to that in a way. And I think they can sustain, you know, certainly an above average defense. Will it finish top five? I don't think so. Will it finish top 10? Maybe not. But if Dyson Daniel is just a mainstay in the rotation at this point, they just put a lot of size on the floor and size can make up for a lot. Elite offense, above average defense with a young superstar. Not a lot to poke holes in there. Yeah, there's not. Like what what holes would you poke if you had to? <laughs> uh, like I, I'm trying to think and I'm almost finding it harder to come up with one than I have for any of the teams we've talked about so far. We, we can poke holes in what we talked about on the offensive end, like that Mm -hmm. we don't think they are being optimized, but it's like not being optimized and actually being a deficiency are two very different things. Like their offense could be better. Yes. And could be better utilized. Yes. But it's still an elite offense. So does it, is it really going to be like what holds them back in terms of being able to compete? Tough Mm -hmm. to say. Yeah. I mean, I guess the shooting, like even though they have a really good three point shooting percentage, uh, they don't, get a ton of threes up, as we've mentioned before. And that kind of makes sense when you look at, you know, their starting lineup has JV, Zion, and Herb Jones in it. Three poor to non three-point shooters. And I've mentioned before with Ingram too, like as much as he is a really good shooter, his shot diet is entirely tilted toward the mid-range. Yeah. And, and that, that speaks to him playing on the ball as much as he does, right? Like, I think if he was playing off ball more and more effectively, he'd be getting a lot more three-point opportunities. Like, he'd be getting catch-and-shoot looks instead of when it's coming off of the dribble, like, a lot of time you're going to get nudged into the mid-range area. Like, nobody's shooting catch-and-shoot twos at this point, right? Like, those right. are all pull-ups. So that that could help fix that issue. And same with CJ, right? Like, CJ playing off of the ball could be getting up like eight catch and shoot threes a game 
So I guess there are fixes to that, but also maybe the structure of the roster and the starting lineup is a roadblock to them actually being a high volume three point shooting team. Yeah. My last thought on the Pelicans and it kind of ties back to the Grizzlies is that in terms of discussing these two very connected up and coming young teams, exciting young teams with a potentially budding rivalry, I would say the Grizzlies have earned more of my trust, Mm. but the Pelicans to me still have the higher ceiling. And if one of these teams could actually like truly, truly compete to win a championship this season, I would give that to the Pelicans. Yeah, I do think the the Grizzlies kind of having experience and continuity going for them is potentially a big benefit, but maybe not. I mean, maybe just being better is what matters. And I kind of think the Pelicans might be the better team. I think so too. I think the Grizzlies have like the higher floor in a way, but I think the Pelicans have the higher ceiling. I guess I'd wonder maybe a little bit about interior defense for the Pelicans, where that's obviously not a concern for the Grizzlies. Like I think that the Pels are stronger on the perimeter and the Grizzlies are stronger on the interior. And it's a very interesting question about which of those things is more important in the NBA today. That's a tease for a future conversation on a future episode. But let's wrap this conversation up. You mentioned off the top that you still, and, and you mentioned this on our last episode too, you still consider the Warriors to be the team to beat in the West. We've talked about the Warriors a bunch, so I feel like we can maybe blast through this portion of the conversation because we're already going long as always. But um, anything you've seen in terms of them kind of turning the corner and starting to look more like that championship contender than they did at the start of the year? I mean, they're still, what, 2-10 and ten on the road? Yeah, that that's what I was going to say. If, well, if I can get the poking the whole thing out of the way early, and that's just that they, for whatever reason, can't seem to win on the road. They're 2-10 and ten on the mm-hmm. road with losses in Charlotte, Detroit, and Orlando, uh, and include and to the depleted Pelicans, one of those uh, road losses as well. But they are starting to get rolling, um, save for that last road loss in Dallas. Steph has been one of the best players in the game. Draymond has been better recently and is starting to kind of round in form. Andrew Wiggins has quietly been better than he was last year when he earned that somewhat controversial all-star spot. Poole has been disappointing. Clay has been, you know, hit or miss. And the bench and the young guys have been bad. But then it's like, you know, James Wiseman's been exiled again. And that has actually helped again, unfortunately, for James Wiseman. They are starting to get rolling now. And you again, you asked me like in a seven-game series, I still take the Warriors over any of these teams. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily just like faith in years past, because I do think some of the stuff that's happened this year would still lean in their favor, including the way Steph's played, including the way Draymond's been recently. The player Wiggins is now. You basically need like one of Clay or Poole to be hot on like any given night. That's fine. Um, the depth is a concern, no doubt about it. But I think, you know, for one kind of playoff run when your best players are playing the majority of the minutes, I think they should be fine. It's an interesting conversation to have because of how good these other teams we've talked about are. And that's without meant you know talking about the potentially but unlikely healthy clippers um but yeah i still i still lean warriors do you disagree with that it's really hard to say because i don't know what this team's gonna look like by the end of the season and i'm also wondering how much of this can just get cleaned up internally because kaminga's already started to play better i think i'm not totally out on wiseman but it just seems like maybe the warriors are leaning towards being totally out on him 
so I don't know if if he plays a part at any point this season, but like I do think, and and they've looked better. Like their bench in general has looked better since Divincenzo got back. Also, uh, like Steve Kerr has kind of tweaked the rotation a little bit in a way that I feel like makes more sense. Like early in the year, he was running out a lot of five man bench units that were just getting absolutely demolished, and he has more or less stopped doing that, and that has led to them looking a lot better. Like they played over 300 minutes this year with no Steph or Draymond on the floor. And they have a minus 20 net rating in those 300 minutes. Like that is not an insignificant sample of them just getting absolutely shit kicked. And Kerr has been kind of reluctant to split those guys up, especially when it comes to like playing Draymond without Steph. And it makes sense because Draymond's offensive game is very reliant on Steph and those two guys kind of amplify each other. And so playing them together as much as possible makes sense. It's only recently that he's actually started splitting them up. And even still, they've only played 63 minutes this season with Draymond on the court and Steph off. But it's clear, or it has become clear, I guess, that they have to have one of those guys on the court for, I guess, at least a longer period of time than they were doing so early in the season. But I think Poole can be better. I mentioned Kaminga is already starting to look better. The defense on the whole still isn't really clicking, but I think the ceiling for that defense is still relatively high. I think they'll be in this mix. I can't, I don't know how to answer the question of like whether right now I would say they're the best in the conference. I mean, right now they're not. Right. right. Whether they will be at the end of the day, I guess is what we're talking about. And I don't know, man, like you mentioned, these other teams are really good. And if you look at the the structure of this Warriors team, it might require them to actually make an in-season trade in order to get up to that level. But then it's, you know, we come back to what would that trade even look like? Because I don't know how much value these young guys, these potential trade chips actually have yeah. right now. So uh, let's leave that there. Those are the five teams that we think right now have a case for being the best in the West. I don't know if we actually made a determination. <laughs> <laughs> did we decide uh which of those teams we think is the best i don't think i have an answer right well, now but leave it for our listeners to decide yeah based on go. everything we've told them i think that's i think that's the right way to go um not doing make or miss on this episode because we did it earlier in the week so i'll just kick it over to you cash for a fan shout out before we sign off here yeah fan shout out goes to at d raptors with two s's on twitter in toronto who uh, tweeted at us earlier in the week that we were in their top five on Spotify Wrapped. So appreciate you at the Raptors. Uh, Raptors season is the profile name. At the Raptors is the handle. Appreciate you uh, listening as often as you did in 2022, and appreciate everyone who's reached out with their Spotify Wrapped that have included pound the rock uh a couple of which will get future fan shout outs in the next couple episodes and then also really quickly just wanted to mention uh at the bobert boberto on twitter who um tweeted at me following our last podcast which uh, shows that he was actually listening right till the end because he tweeted at me saying you are dead on regarding from scratch on netflix my wife needed an iv after she binged it in one afternoon she was more dehydrated than lebron in game one of the 2014 finals uh, i did mention that it is a it is a show that will test the emotional limits of your heart and i guess the, the hydration levels in your body too because you will lose a lot of them through tears i didn't lose any through tears but if I was the kind of person that can cry watching TV or movies, I certainly would have because I felt it inside. 
I'm not even familiar with this. Okay. What is it? It's a movie. It's a show. It's a limited series. It's eight episodes, but it's based on a true story, or at least like inspired by a true story that were the memoirs of the woman who actually wrote the original story. And then they made a Netflix series based on that story and those memoirs starring Zoe Saldana that uh, takes part, part in Italy and part in the United States. It's very good. The only thing I would caution anyone listening is don't watch the trailer and don't Google it because, because it's a true story. As soon as you start Googling it, you will know most of the story and it would still be an entertaining watch, but it's, it spoils it a lot. And even the trailer itself is one of those trailers that you basically know everything that's about to happen if you watch the trailer. So if you're going to watch from scratch, don't watch the trailer. Don't Google anything about it. And then the third thing I'd say is because my mistake was I went in like just, or when I first started seeing stuff about it, thought it was going to be this like really cheesy kind of rom-com thing that I, I wasn't going to be into. I like, I like a good rom-com, but not like the extremely cheesy ones. And that's what I thought it was going to be. Ended up giving it a chance. Cause one of my friends who's like super into film and television told me that it is not at all what I thought it would be. And they were absolutely right. It's incredible. I can't believe I spent two episodes of Pound the Rock now plugging from scratch the end of it. But, uh, and I promise it's not the Italian bias either. It's just, it's really um, well done. Zoe Saldana is really good in it and uh, pretty heartbreaking too. Anyway, that's my spiel. So thanks. That's uh, a good sell, man. I'm yeah. maybe going to have to check this out now. So yeah. you, thank you for watch. that. I do, I do hate when trailers do that. Yeah, and this like, one definitely, yeah, so. like I'm telling you right now, don't yeah. watch that trailer. It 100% spoils the entire thing. Um, all right, let's wrap this up. Um, <laughs> thank you to all of our listeners, whether we were in your Spotify wrapped or not. We appreciate you riding with us for any number of episodes, for any amount of time. We will be back next week with a new batch of takes. For now... For this weekend edition of Pound the Rock, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Take her easy. 